Welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and look, here we are. It's 2020. We've had uh, about a month or so off the podcast, uh, enjoying New Zealand summer, spending some time at the beach, hanging out with uh, little mate Rufus and my wife Hannah and some of our friends and family. Uh, And it's been good, it's been hot, uh, but now we're back. We're getting into it for the new year, a new decade even. Surely there's lots of inspirational uh, statements we could make about that, but uh, that's it's not that kind of podcast, so never mind. Um, a quick reminder, of course, to start the year, in case you've forgotten or never heard, uh, that you can uh, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash in the shift. You can uh, jump on there and uh, become a financial supporter of the project and uh, we're going to be bringing some things to Patreon this year, some extra conversations and um, and stuff like that, which is going to be fun. So feel free to do that. Of course, if you just want to get in touch, uh, you can go to intheshift.com or you can find me and In The Shift on the usual social media platforms. You know, uh, I am a whiz on the social media. I've, I've learned, I, I can tweet. I can tweet with the best of them. Actually, my tweets aren't the best, but you know what I mean. I'm there, and isn't that something? Uh, so, yes, a good one. Find me however you can, unless you know me in person, in which case just come and talk to me. Uh, I've been thinking a lot over the summer break about where we'll be heading this year with the podcast uh, and reflecting a lot on the, on the kind of conversations and feedback and the emails and, the com- and, and, and all of that that have come up uh, since starting in the shift, and even previously to that, I suppose, as I was already beginning to have conversations with people. And one of the things that come that has come up a lot in all of that conversation and feedback and discussion is that for many people, as they begin rethinking their views of God and faith and spirituality, and maybe especially so if they've come from a history of you know pretty traditional kind of classical Christianity, um, is what do you do with notions of whether God actually intervenes? In our lives, and throughout the course of the podcast to this point, we've we've touched on this here and there. Uh, back in episode twenty-two, we talked about healing, for example. So, so we've come in and out of this conversation, touching it at various points. But I wanted to dive into it a bit deeper here for a few reasons, and and I think there's still so much to talk about in this conversation because how we think about God intervening in our lives actually has a lot to do with how we conceive of think about God. At all, and for many people, many of us, our spirituality has has really been built around an interventionist God. You know, one who we pray to and ask to do things. Um, you know, so we have all of what's classically called the petitionary prayers. You know, asking God for provision or healing or protection or changing our circumstances or whatever it might be. Um, so there's there's that kind of prayer life, if you like, that is shaped by uh, this interventionist God. Um, but it goes beyond that too, because, you know, even even just the common kind of uh, classically Christian phrases of, of, of kind of modern evangelical Pentecostal charismatic Christianity, I don't know if those terms mean anything to you, but anyway, you might recognize this kind of phrase of, you know, what's God's plan for me right now? Or God's closing the door and opening another door? Or what's God saying to me at the moment? Or I'm feeling led by God to do so-and-so? Or God is in control? Um, All of these different ways of talking um, have a way of thinking about a God who in some sense is responsive or who gets involved in some kind of way, who interacts, who acts in the world and speaks and so on. And 
for many people, they relate to their spirituality and to God um, like that without even really thinking about it. And I guess for, for parts of my life, I've done that too. And yet there, sometimes when we encounter crisis, perhaps some kind of event that unfolds in our life uh, that maybe disrupts some of the pretty concrete constructs we might have held in the past, or maybe we just go through a period of deconstruction for, for a different set of reasons, it can happen that people struggle to then make sense of seeing God this way. And so all of those kind of phrases that would just roll off the tongue before suddenly feel like they don't work or they don't make sense anymore. Or you go to pray and you find that that the language and the rhythm that you usually use for prayer just doesn't seem to fit the kind of disrupted view of God or even a, a deconstructing view of God or even a reforming view of God. What do we do in that kind of a moment, and especially when that moment might not just be a moment in time, but can be years or or longer, decades. And so these questions, especially at times of, of pulling things apart or of crisis or disruption, um, cause us to, to wonder about what rules, you know, if, if God is this God who can intervene, get involved and interact and so on, then what are the rules kind of governing that? Are there any? Does it relate to our faith or to our circumstances or to some kind of divine sovereignty where God has already decided what will happen in advance and so we just have to sort of play it out or is God like the wind and we have no real influence and it's just a big mystery? Um, you know, if God can get involved sometimes, why does so much evil happen in the world? Surely if God can get involved in little ways and, and maybe big ways, then God would spend much more time dealing with seriously pressing concerns, right? Like uh, war and violence and abuse and holocausts. So if God can intervene, why doesn't God intervene? Is God just a bit disinterested or is God not that powerful or is God all powerful but doesn't choose to use that power? Do we just appeal to a sense of mystery and say that God's ways are higher than our ways and walk on by? Well, maybe that's okay sometimes for people, but for some of us, we've bumped into moments in life where there's not really satisfactory answers to those questions or we need more information. So once we start and try and think through some of these tough questions, we can be left wondering if God really is the kind of God who gets in intervenes or who gets involved. And if that's the case, well, what does that mean, right? So if God is not really that involved, then is the whole Christian thing just a big waste of time? Uh, because what, what do we do with the sacred text of the Christian tradition, right? The Bible through which a God who seemingly intervenes quite a lot is, is pretty central to the story. So these become really big questions, you know? Um, so much of our spirituality all the way through can relate to this way of seeing God. And so when you challenge that or deconstruct that or ask some serious questions of that, what do you actually have left? Maybe just let go of the idea of God at all because it seems like there's too many problems with the whole thing. And so with all of this swirling around, I thought what better way to head into a new decade, a new year uh, for In The Shift than to tackle the small problem of, of whether or not God intervenes in the world, uh, if that language is useful or not, if so, how, if not, why not? What do we even mean by God anyway? A miracle's possible. And what's going on here? So, you know, we're just going to be looking at the, the, the small stuff 
Um, I've called this series Divine Intervention, but with a question mark at the end. And we're going to take our time working through some different ways of approaching this conversation that I hope will be helpful. And we're going to talk about ways of understanding God, about the problem of pain and suffering, about prayer and what's going on there, about miracles. And even though I'm a theologian, I'm not setting myself up here as someone who has all the answers to these questions. Uh, People much smarter than me have been wrestling with them for hundreds, if not thousands of years, I guess. But we'll at least see if we can make a little bit of sense from the conversation over the course of the next little while. So this is episode 31 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so the title of this episode is Where in the World is God? And I feel like that's a good place to start and a good question to wrestle with and maybe the question will make sense on a couple of different levels by the time we get to the end of this episode. But how do we even think about the notion of a God? And when we do, how do we make sense of thinking through how that God might relate to the world? These are important questions. Uh, Because so much of what goes on in the world is deeply challenging to us. Yes, there is beauty and love and wonder and joy, but there's also pain and suffering and heartache and even things we might name as evil. So where is God in all of that? Is God at work relying on us? Has God God created the universe and then just walked away, leaving it to run itself? Or is God still at work? But if so, where, how, why, why so little? Why so hard to prove? Is God really giving some people the ability to sell their houses for a huge profit and putting hashtag blessed on their Instagram while others live in refugee camps for their entire lives? How do we make sense of this? So this first episode in the series is a way into this conversation. And we're not going to solve all of our problems straight away. And perhaps by the time we're done, we won't have solved our problems at all. But I do want to open up this conversation and see where it takes us. And I I don't want to treat this... Although I'm a theologian, I don't want to treat this just as some abstract theoretical conversation. Because although you can talk about it in those terms, you know, you can debate it and toss ideas around, it's actually really personal. It impacts, it intersects with our real lived lives and especially if we've experienced loss or grief or we've really wanted something to happen that hasn't happened or we've got lots of reasons to be skeptical but yet we hold this kind of hope for something you know these these are really personal ways in which this this kind of way of believing or of seeing the world um is brought to bear on our real life and i was thinking this over our summer months uh, when a big story came out of a well-known church in north america and I don't know if you'd bumped into the story or not, but you know, one of the little, a two-year-old girl who was a daughter of one of the worship leaders in the church had tragically and unexpectedly died. And, um, and what had happened in this particular situation is they started a worldwide movement of prayer and faith to see their little girl raised from the dead. And they prayed and they prayed and they started nightly sort of worship and prayer nights and people around the world got into it as well. And so there were preachers and worship leaders from all over the globe Instagramming and tweeting and Facebooking or 
whatever about it. Um, gathering, praying, everybody believing to see this little girl resurrected from a tragic death. And uh, this had went on for, for night after night after night or day after day. And and there were such varied responses, you know, all over the place from people, some people just so, so caught up in what was happening here and believing seemingly without any doubt at all that this was going to happen and somehow this was going to be a pivotal moment in sort of the history of Christianity and, and revival. So there were people having dreams and visions of this little girl being raised and they were sharing those online and about how God had spoken to them that this was going to happen. Um, and then other people were responding and saying, no, you have to stop. God is sovereign. And if this little girl has died, then it's God's sovereign will that that has happened. And so you're trying to resist God's will by praying for her to come back. And so you had these kind of two different um Christian responses to the situation and then a bunch of people also just kind of mystified and troubled and, and maybe a little bit confused by the whole thing from all angles. And as I kind of followed the story and and watched it unfold, I found a mixture of things too. I know that in my early 20s in particular, I was really, I was really passionately dedicating myself to try and become someone who was so deeply, you know, deeply connected with God that I could see amazing miracles happen. I'd read these stories of famous revivalists and incredible miracle workers in the past and around the world. And I thought if I prayed often enough or long enough or hard enough or desperately enough, I also might access this kind of spiritual reality where I'd be able to see these things happen too. And so as I you know, as I read these stories last month about this little girl, I recognized my younger self in the way that people were responding to this. You know, my 23, 24-year-old self would have been all about that, would have been into it, 100% on board, hoping to bring that little girl back. And I've also recently become a parent, and so I also just deeply empathize and still do with the desire to, to... to bring back this lost child. I Honestly, I don't know what I'd do with myself if I was in that situation. And it's totally heartbreaking to even think of it. So I, I get it. I get why this became a thing. But at the same time, I guess, as a theologian and as someone who works in the field of spirituality and trying to help people make some sense of this stuff, a bunch of really difficult questions emerge around this particular scenario as well. Like, what happens afterwards to all of those people who had the dreams and visions where God told them what was going to happen and then it didn't happen? Um, you know, those not just asking for it to happen but claiming that it definitely would, what what goes on for them in the weeks since all of this unfolded and the girl wasn't raised and in the end the revival meeting stopped and everyone had to come to terms with the reality of the situation? How does the family process this? How do people all over the world find ways to make sense of this? And then I also, you know, found myself thinking, what if there were people in that church even who had also lost someone precious to them, but they weren't sort of a well-known leader in in the church then, or they had very little influence in that kind of way. So there are no nightly prayer meetings for them and their loss, just as there aren't really global calls for resurrection, you know, for the children of those who die in wars in the Middle East or from starvation or any other number of great tragedies all the time. So how do we find our way through this kind of thing? So much comes up all at once for people. I posed a question 
on Instagram last week asking people whether they thought God intervened directly in their lives. And the answers that came back really varied. You know, some people were happy to give a straight up no. No, I don't think God does intervene. Others gave sort of a, I'm, I'm not sure. Sometimes I think that, sometimes I don't think that. Some said I'd like it to be the case, but surely it can't be when we look at going, what's going on in the world so that the idea of it is appealing and yet you look around and say, surely God's not involved. For others, the response was like, I'm, I'm skeptical um, and, I'm, and I've got lots of reasons to doubt, but then I also think I experienced something in my life that seemed like God and seemed like some kind of intervention and so I don't know how to make sense of it. I don't want to deny that meaningful moment, but I'm also racked with doubts. And then for others, it's simply I think about this question every single day. Okay, so maybe to kick ourselves off, we'll examine some different ways of thinking about the God-world relationship as a way to try and get a starting point on the conversation because there's so much to explore and to say here um, that I thought one of the ways of kind of starting the conversation on the back of so much of what I've just said that might give us some scaffold or, some, or scaffolding or some, some framework to hold some of our ideas uh, on. Uh, and so, although this isn't an abstract theoretical conversation, as I've just said, I do want to explore some theological ideas and then see if they can become helpful to us as we go along. So, what do I want to say about that? Well, in the Western tradition um, in particular, but I think maybe this relates more broadly than that as well, there are lots of different ways of thinking about God, but they tend to fall into three broad categories of thought, which I want to describe briefly in today's episode. And they are classical theism, panentheism, and pantheism. Now, theism's related to God. And these are three different ways of conceiving, really, of God in relationship to reality, in relationship to the world. And this will be brought to bear on then how it impacts on whether or not God is present, is absent, intervenes or doesn't, or whatever we might want to say about that. So if we start with classical theism, then this kind of framework tends to think of God as a being who is distinct from the world. So God is the creator in the classical theism model. God is other than the material world of the universe. God is the most supreme and, and all-powerful being. Often people in classical theist uh, model think of God as existing outside of time and outside of space, a God who is distinct from all things. Uh, in many respects, I think it's, it's probably the most common way of thinking about God in the Christian tradition. Uh, some of these ways of thinking about God do actually stem from Greek philosophical and religious thought, uh, but through the Christian tradition get, get um, integrated, I guess, into a Christian vision of things, where God is the supreme being, the totally self-sufficient, the unchanging one. God is infinite. God is omnipresent, or present everywhere. Omniscient knows everything, and omnipotent is all-powerful. This God is sovereign over all things, and all things are ultimately under the dominion and domain of God's rule and God's authority. And this God does not require anyone or anything to be satisfied or to exist or to be. So in this kind of classical theism, and you might kind of recognize some of that language, you might not. 
But you have a God who is distinct and other from creation, who then acts to bring um, the universe into reality uh, and then upholds the existence of this universe by the divine will. This God is a being who's transcendent, who is beyond, even as this God is present to us. And from here, there, there are probably there are two basic modes within classical theism of thinking about God in relation to how God might act in the world. One is deism, in which this classical kind of God then essentially does everything we've just said, but then leaves creation to run itself. So kind of sets it up, creates the laws of the universe, spins things into motion, and then lets things run and play out. So there's no real, there's no miracles, there's no intervention. It's just a, there is a God, a supreme being, a transcendent being, but that God created things, kicked things off, uh, and maybe we'll bump into that God at the end. Uh, but in the meantime, things are just kind of running their natural course. So you have deism as a part of the classical theism model, or you have a much more interventionist or relational God of varying degrees in which God continues to act upon creation. So the language might use in that sense what might be to think of God as doing something supernatural or miraculous or reaching into our reality and making something unusual or different happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So uh, when you have that kind of classical theism model, then you've got this God who is distinct and other, and that sets up a particular way of thinking about the way in which God might or might not interact with uh, all the rest of reality in the universe of which we are inhabiting a small part. So um, this differs somewhat from what we then call panentheism. And there are a few different versions of panentheism as well. And perhaps at its most basic, panentheism is the idea that God is in and through all of reality. And that all of reality is in and through God. So rather than God being this entirely distinct and separate being, the most powerful all beings who, of all beings who then acts to be present or intervene in our lives, in, that's the kind of classical theism model. In panentheism, God is somehow present in and through all of the universe. Uh, and then um, there is this kind of interrelatedness between God and the universe. So some panentheists would maintain especially uh, in the domain of something that's known as process theology. Don't worry about the term so much for now. Maybe we'll come back to it at some point in the series. Um, but Birch and Cobb, for example, who are a couple of process theologians, say that God is not the world and the world is not God, but God includes the world and the world includes God. And so they're saying that God is inherently relational at the very core, and if this is the case, if God is relational, then God must always have some reality to relate to. And so there's this level of interdependence between God and the universe, even as uh, the universe requires God for its existence and for its ongoing um, being, so God also um, is interrelated to universe itself. Like I said, can sound a little abstract and theoretical. But what all this kind of means is that relationality and openness, freedom, are at the core of God's relationship with the world. And there's a sense of God being already present in all things. So rather than having a God who's entirely distinct from reality, the universe, from creation, whatever language you want to give that, who then has to reach in to intervene, in panentheism you have a God who 
is in and through all things already present and somehow at work in the natural processes of life. Um, Often in that way of thinking then the divine relates to the world and all of reality in love and then the world is given freedom to genuinely respond positively or negatively to that divine relationship, to the divine love that underpins all things. And so some people, for example, have posed that God doesn't intervene in the world then, but rather nature participates in God and with God. So there's all sorts of things we could explore in that conversation. But for now, I just want to frame this up as a a different way of thinking about God and the God-world relationship than the kind of classical theism model. So you've got the classical theism with the God as quite distinct and other and transcendent and supreme and then in panentheism, where there's this interrelatedness and even interdependence and a presence in all things. Uh, one of the other panentheist kind of models that has come along uh, is perhaps best characterized by a phrase from the theologian and philosopher Paul Tillich in the mid-20th century, who talked about God as the ground of being. And the ground of being is a phrase that's used quite widely now and not always in the specific way that Tillich meant it. And reading Tillich is kind of complicated. Uh, But essentially, Tillich's idea is that God is not a being, but being itself. So God in this sense is not a supreme being or the most powerful being, but God is the name we give to that which gives rise to all of existence. Tillich would say, in some sense, that we cannot say that God exists because... uh, being, you know, beings exist. God is the ground of being. God cannot exist in the sense that beings do. In a sense, to say that God exists would be to deny God for Tillich, which sounds like a weird thing to say. But essentially, he's saying existing is something that beings do, and God is the ground of being, not a being. But then, because God is the ground of all being, then God gives the beingness to all of reality itself which means rather than being far off, God is integral to everything that exists. And I think it's probably fair to say that Tillich lands on a kind of panentheism here, a kind of in and through and interrelatedness and interdependence. And again, this brings up all sorts of questions about how to think about God acting in the world, which we won't get to uh, at this stage yet, but I think there's interesting ideas at play here. Um... Lastly then, so we've got classical theism, then we've got panentheism. Uh, the third one we want to talk about briefly is pantheism. So in pantheism, all is God and God is all. So rather than God being in all and all in God, as we kind of have in that panentheist model, in pantheism, uh, we find the kind of construct you'll often hear when people talk about the universe or universal oneness and so on, that sense that all of creation is itself divine and we are all a part of it. So we're all ultimately one, all part of each other, all together constituting something divine. And so in this sense, we are the divine. So as we act, the divine, I guess you could say, is essentially acting, but we don't have this divine intervention from outside as much as recognizing the sense of unity and oneness within all things. So a few things to say about that, and I hope you tracked with those three models. I think a lot of the questions that come up for people in the first instance, uh, especially around divine intervention and miracles or 
supernatural stuff or even just prayer or spirituality and faith and how we relate to God. Often relate often often the big questions begin with that kind of classical theism model. Um, that God who is the supreme ultimate uh, transcendent being who's distinct who's very distinct from other than um, the universe and creation and reality. Uh, so it's often there where a bunch of questions first start to come up, but it's also often there that some people might have some quite meaningful experiences that are that that I don't want to just quickly discount and move on from. In panentheism, I think there are some interesting, curious, and maybe even appealing ways of thinking about God and the God world relationship. But often for people, it's all it's a bit hard to get their heads around, especially if you've been brought up in that kind of classical theism model. And is it actually a kind of a understandable way of thinking about God and what does it actually mean for the way I might participate in my spirituality? So if you're going to engage in that kind of framework, then I think some real thinking and rethinking and some new ways of thinking about spirituality are probably in order. Um, and then I think the third of these options, pantheism, is, is not usually considered particularly orthodox or, or within the Christian um, whatever, the Christian tradition, which is not to discount it, but to simply recognize that traditionally pantheism sits outside of the general frameworks of of Christian orthodoxy, uh, which tends to think about God as distinct from us. Um, Now, I don't say that to discount it either, but just simply to name the fact that it's often uh, seen as sitting outside of Christian orthodoxy. Um, Certainly, it seems that kind of core to the Christian belief system is that God is somehow distinct or other uh, than us, however we might think of that. But there are other religious systems that very much do lean in a pantheist direction. So as this conversation unfolds, hopefully we're just going to, you know, see how we bump into these different models and what we might think of them and how helpful they might be to us, how much do they resonate with our real experience of life as well as perhaps the tradition that we come from and so on. Now, I remain open uh, to a variety of views, and so I'm trying to participate in this conversation with you as we go along. So in the first instance, I don't say these at this stage to say which one is right and then which one is wrong, but just to provide a general way of understanding the framework, the framework within which people tend to conceive of or to think about the God-world relationship, which then has significant implications for the way we think about divine intervention or not. And so if you listen along in future episodes, it might be helpful to keep these three different frameworks in mind. Uh, As I said, at this point, this part might sound all a little bit abstract, but actually, while on one level it sounds that way, in another sense, it becomes deeply personal quite quickly, comes to shape all of the ways we interact with God and our spirituality and the world around us. You know, it, it connects to what the point and purpose of prayer is. For instance, how do we relate to God? What do we ask of God or not? What's the point of our spirituality? These questions are all connected together in this conversation. So we want to pick our way through some of these. So please do stay tuned for what's coming. So until then, here's my final promo plug for today. Now, apparently, what people say on podcasts because I've been listening, I hear the podcasts out there, they're a real situation, is uh, what they say is that you should uh, like and subscribe and share and so on and uh, and so forth. So, you know, hey, go for it. You can write a glorious review 
on Apple Podcasts. Oh, goodness me, imagine if you did. Uh, or you can just simply tell people you know if you're finding In The Shift helpful. And of course, to all of my secret listeners who don't want anyone to know they're listening to a heretic like me, that's all good too. You just keep listening in the privacy of your own headphones and enjoy the ride. Thanks again to Reese Michelle for continuing to provide quality sound manipulation skills to help make my voice sound listenable. It's good to be back. I'll see you next time on In The Shift.